You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 271. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. I have a brief introduction today before we get to our guest, which is Adam Kane from ASML, a topic that is breaking new ground today on the Local Maximum. I am speaking to you today uh, for the last time from the Local Maximum studio here in Salem, New Hampshire. But by the time you hear this, I will be back in Connecticut uh, in 2020 or, or 2021, New York City to me went from being the best possible place to live to like the worst possible place to live. But now I need to get back, at least for now, closer to where my my network is, both personal and professional. Uh, that said, I don't think I'm finished with New Hampshire, and I expect to be uh, back here quite frequently to visit and in the long term, who knows? So I know a lot of people who, uh, who I know here in New Hampshire are going to be disappointed. But speaking of Connecticut... Uh, this gives me a chance to get closer to where I grew up, back to my roots even. And it's fitting that we do this interview today, which is about a, a fascinating and a very important company right there in Wilton, Connecticut. And their work on hardware uh, on the semiconductor space has global implications for the world of software. In fact, you'll see at the end of this interview, I tried to wrap my head around all these implications and I just started to do it. I just was, you know, lack of a better term, scratching the surface and I feel strongly that we need to learn more. So I guess the question that I'm asking is, why is it that for the duration of our whole lives, not only that, but all of modern history, we have devices that seem to improve year over year? From, from the hardware, the actual hardware of the device to the, the, the software that's written on top of this device, this occurs. And yet, historically, this state of affairs is, is rather unprecedented. So someone is doing the work, the research work at every level, from the hardware level to the software level, and it starts at the atomic level of the semiconductor. And that's what we're here to learn about today. You'll learn that far from being just some standard process to produce these critical components, you have a dynamic team of scientists and engineers that are constantly pushing the envelope, in, including uh, on, on one of the recent paradigms, which is extreme UV lithography. I know big word, but we'll get to it in a minute to etch these things out on a scale that is that's very hard to imagine. So just to get a taste of it today, we're going to talk to the Director of Software and Electrical Engineering at ASML, Adam Kane. You've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. So I'm. A, this is a very different kind of a, a, a topic than I usually... Well, I, I'm always talking about technology, but I actually never really in the five years I've been doing this show, never really got into hardware, never really got into semiconductor ecosystem. So I, I want to hear more about that. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what is your role at ASML and, and what is ASML? Sure. Um, so uh, I am the um, software and electrical engineering uh, director here at the Wilton, Connecticut site for ASML. Uh, we have sites all over the world. Um, and Wilton is, is one of the, or the biggest uh, development site in the U.S., but our main site is in um, the Netherlands, uh, Veldhoven, Netherlands. Uh, worldwide, I think we have about 37 or 40,000 employees. Uh, in Connecticut, we have about somewhere between 
2,503,000. And what we do is uh, we have a saying, uh, we're the most important tech company you've never heard of. Um, We actually make the uh, equipment that all of the big uh, semiconductor companies like Intel, which is probably the the biggest um, household name that- Biggest thing you have heard of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Intel, TSMC, Samsung are the three biggest ones. Uh, other ones include right Toshiba, Sony, um, Hynix, companies like that. But they use our technology to make microchips. Um, so pretty much everything you buy today has a microchip in it. Um, there are very few things that don't have chips in it. Um, clothes is probably the most common thing that doesn't, but that'll probably change in the future. Um, and, uh, if, if, a, a, a product has microchips in it, chances are they were made using our machines. Wow. So, um, it sounds like the, the, the companies you listed like Intel, Samsung, it sounds like just about everybody. I mean, I almost want to ask, maybe this is not appropriate to ask, like who doesn't use your machines? Um, I, I don't think anyone, to be honest with you. So, uh, we have, um, we have a pretty big market share. That's why I say we're the most important company you've never heard of. Um, there's two main types of uh, technology that drive semiconductors today. Uh, one is called uh, DPUV, and one is called uh, EUV. Stands for extreme ultraviolet. And those, and that has to do with the wavelength of light that we use in order to create the um, the, the microchips. And Basically, for EUV, which is the more advanced technology, we are the only company in the world that that has that technology in our systems. Um, So anything that is on the higher end uh, of the microchip scale um, is is made by us. There's no other company in the world that that has this technology right now. So uh, what, what is EUV? Why are we talking about ultraviolet light when it comes to making semiconductors? Like, what's the connection there? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, the way the our, our tools work is it, it's like a almost like a big printing press. Uh, if you go back to your your lessons when you were a child, right? So a printing the way a printing press works, right? You've got you know the metal plates, and then you've got ink, and then you've got paper that presses against it, and that's how you recreate patterns over and over and over again. But for um, uh, uh, semiconductor equipment. You basically replace those things uh, instead of uh, a steel metal mask, you have a piece of glass, and that, that's called a reticle or a mask. Um, and instead of um, uh, a paper, it's we, we etch onto silicon wafers. Uh, and then the most important part of it is instead of ink, we use laser light to basically etch the pattern from the glass to the silicon wafer. And the difference between DUV and EUV is DUV, um, I don't off the top of my head remember the, 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 um, uh, uh, the, how big it is, but basically you can shoot D, DUV light through air. It's got to be very, very clean air, but it still will go through air and it'll go through glass. Uh, the big um, evolution in the industry, which we um, made that step uh, you know, it started probably 20 years ago, but really to our customers closer to 10 or 15 years ago was 
the EUV technology. This, this light wave is so small and thin, it does not go through air. Anything that it hits, uh, uh, it, it you know, bounces off and, and, and you lose it. So you have to do all of these things in a vacuum. So our newer systems are basically really big vacuum chambers, uh, which creates new and interesting technology uh, uh, challenges to, to overcome. Um, but it allows us to print thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner lines. And the thinner the lines, the more you can fit on a chip, the, more, the less power the chips can uh, uh, consume, which makes right the, the chips of today, which is why they're so much more powerful, both from a, a battery usage standpoint and from uh, how much you can fit on it and how fast they are than they are every year or two. Awesome. So how, how long has this uh, EUV technology been in, uh, in production? Um, that's a good question. I, again, I don't know the exact details, but I know that we have been, uh, it's been in research for decades. Um, right. So, but to get to the point where we could create a affordable system um, for our customers to use in their production process, that really happened, uh, I want to think back in 2014 or 2015 was when the first, um, and maybe even a few years before that, where the first EUV systems went to our first customers. Uh, and right. then since then, it's just been a series of, of industrialization and upgrades to make them more powerful, uh, more throughput, which is how many wafers come out of them per, per hour, um, and more reliable for our customers. Awesome. Do you guys have a sense? And I, I know the answer might just be no. I mean, it might just be like, hey, people demand uh, that semiconductors be made, you know, smaller, faster, more reliable, all of that. But do you have a sense of like, you know, when you when you push an innovation like this and when you make changes over the years, are there any applications that become possible with this technology, like products or anything like that 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 weren't possible before? Um. Yeah, so that's a good question. That that really goes to the end customer, probably our second or third tier customer. Um, but it it's really it, it, it. I would say your imagination is the limit here, right? So it and what our systems do, and and a lot of people, if you've been, if you know anything about computers or chips or anything, you've heard you might have heard of something called Moore's law. Uh, Moore's law was basically a paper that was written by, I think his first name was Gordon Moore, who worked for Intel back in like the 60s. And he said something to the effect of, right, for every two years, the, the number of transistors on a chip in the same amount of size will double um, every two years. Something to that. Right. Yeah. And what that does is it, it allowed every sort of evolution of technology to take place from you know, from the beginning of time in a way up until today. And you can imagine that back in the 60s and 70s, everyone worked on mainframes, right? Where Because these big computers took up huge rooms, right? And then we kind of got the evolution into the, um, the, the desktop market, right? Where everyone had a, a personal computer in the 80s and 90s. And then in when you transition to the 2000s and the early 2010s, everyone started having with the mobile devices. And now we're going through a transition where um, it's not, 
you know, people don't have one computer and one phone. You've got tablets and you've got, um, uh, uh, you know, mobile device or, you know, phones and your, your headphones and everything. And now everything that you buy has a chip in it and it wants to, you know, have access to your Wi-Fi so that everything can be connected where this is what we call the sort of the internet of things where every device is talking to every other device. And all of these things are only made possible because of Moore's law. And our company really drives that with the, the ability for our customers to pack more into every chip that they make every year. And not only that, but the power usage goes down. Um, so we're living in a world where, you know, obviously ESG is very important. Being green is very important. And one of the, the, the very, very good side effects of what we do is that every, you know, it takes less to do a lot more when it comes to power as ev- with each generation of these, uh, these chips that our, our equipment generates. Awesome. Yeah. So, so there's Moore's law and then there's also this, this broader law, like law of accelerating returns of information technology. There's a guy, uh, Ray Kurzweil talks about a lot where it's like, okay, even before Moore's law, you had, uh, you know, uh, punch cards where a new punch card technology would come out and then it would be, it would be twice as, as powerful the next year. Um, I guess, um, so I mean, my other question was what you guys do related to Moore's Law. Just answered it. (laughs) Totally integral. Um, But you often hear people say that, you know, oh, Moore's Law is ending, or I think Moore's Law is ending in 10 years, or I think, and maybe there's a broader uh, statement about Moore's Law versus Law of Accelerating Returns. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, do do you guys have a more front row seat of, because I feel like a lot of people who say this don't really know what they're talking about. No, it's an excellent question. Um, Because I'll tell you, I remember when I was, I think, maybe I was in middle school or, or, or early high school. I remember, you know, they would say, you know, the, the, these type of processors, the, you know, 286 or 386, it, it was, it was the end. It couldn't get any better. Right. Um, but what happens is, and, and we can get really technical. I won't get too technical because also I don't understand all of it. Right. Every few years we make, we make technological advances in the art of, of, the semiconductor equipment. So um, you you hit a wall with what you know. And then, for example, I'm going to say probably 20 years ago, something called um, immersion technology got introduced. And what that did was in the on the, the deep UV line, we were able to figure out a way to put a drop of water in between the laser and the the um, the uh, uh, the wafer that gave us more resolution and more throughput and and so on and so forth. And so this immersion step brought us into the next realm. And then we thought we were going to hit another wall and then EUV happened and EUV happened because we figured out a way to corral this extreme ultraviolet, which no one thought we could figure out a way to generate and not only generate, but get usable in a tool because it it had to happen in vacuum. Um, And then there's the next step because, because at some point, right? You get, you get smaller than, than at the atomic level. So, right. Um, is there an end in sight? Theoretically? Yes. Um, but I know, you know, the, the company itself, we're always looking, not 
our roadmaps in our company, we don't look in the one to two years. We're looking five, 10, 15 years down the road constantly. Um, so we have roadmaps that go out that far. Um, so I can tell you that we will continue to drive the market at least for the next 10 or 15 years um, with what we know today. Um, but there, but we, this company also relies on forging ahead with technology that we don't know. We say we need to get there. It's not a question of if, it's just a matter of how do we do it. And we just try and figure it out. Um, and it might not be a traditional solution. It might be something that no one's ever thought of. And that's that's why working at ASML is is, is kind of as fascinating and fun as it, as it is. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy to think like, okay, you guys, it sounds like already have ideas on how to you know, keep this, keep the innovation going out to the next decade. And then it's like, well, what are the chances that nobody thinks of any ideas uh, from, from there to, from the next 10 years, like almost right. zero. Right. So it's like, right. okay, this, this continues for, for quite a bit. Uh, the rate of change could always change, um, but uh, it's sort of hard, hard to predict. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I have some questions here about um, that, I'm going to try out. We'll see if we have anything to say about this. But uh, you know, sure. a lot of my listeners are uh, people who are in in software, software engineers. A lot of people who who work with data, like uh, yes. machine learning engineers, like myself, yep. or you know. And we think about hardware just more in terms of like, okay, I have this like algorithm that I run a run that's kind of hungry. So how much do I have to pay for it? But we don't really yes. think about it in terms of the technology underneath. So do you have anything say to say specifically? To, uh, to to software and data people uh, that 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 you think might be of interest to to them who, who don't think about hardware that much or or, or even you guys um, are even like several steps <laughs> below the hardware. Well, yes and no. I mean, we we have a you know we, we have I think three thousand, if not more, three thousand software engineers worldwide. Um, uh, specifically in Wilton, we have about two hundred and forty software engineers working here today. Um, so we certainly write a lot of software and we kind of split it up. Um, there's, there's the, what we would call embedded software engineers, uh, which, uh, by trade, that's what I was. That's what I went to school for. Um, and that's what I did. You know, I started, I started at ASML as a software engineer 15 years ago. Um, and you know, th these are the, the, the engineers that, you know, you're working on a board whether it's a Raspberry Pi or it's an old, you know, uh, 8086 board or, or whatever it is, you know, you get really excited when you make an LED light up or run at a, at a, at a, at a one hertz frequency because that's, you know, what, what you were trying to do. Um, and then you take that to the next level and now you're not driving an LED, you're driving a robot to move a reticle around or move a wafer around. Um, and that's really what the, the, um, embedded uh, uh, software engineers do. Um, then you have the, the layer above that, um, which are more the application engineers. And those are really the, the, the people that look at what's coming out of um, what, is, what is the end product of this machine, right? Where we're, we're, we're spitting out wafers as fast as we can, but we're trying to, we're trying to also do that with a certain quality, right? So overlay, things like our KPIs, which are overlay and throughput, um, we want to make sure that every single line that we hit um, or try to write, it happens at exactly the same place because 
the layers just get printed right on top of each other. And when you're talking about nanometers, which we haven't talked about yet, but na a nanometer is really small. Um, is when that we have overlay a, specs, a billionth of a meter, or uh, am, I, am I right? It's a millionth of or of a of a meter. Yeah, it's like a billionth of a meter or something. Billionth of a meter, and okay, um, well, so a millionth of a millimeter. It's a, it, hmm. You know, it's meter, then millimeter, then micrometer, then nanometer. Yeah, so is that counting is, zeros? Yeah, is that close to the uh, atomic level yet, or is that more like? Um, I'm we're, trying to get a sense. Yeah, we're I haven't getting at the... close to the atomic level of hmm. of uh, of silicon. Yes. Um. So, but we have we have closed loop systems that read out how well we're 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 printing out, and then in the system, there's probably a million machine constants that get twiddled as these things go to to make sure that the next wafer is even better at the nanometer level. And then you've got data science and machine learning, which are kind of a, a, of an abstracted layer. And I would say we're, you know, th this is a fairly new, commercially new science, right? And um, uh, for ASML, we, we, we generate tons of data uh, every, every second of every hour of every day when these things are running. And the data scientists are taking in the data and again, Doing things like pr predictive maintenance or more um, more applications using the data um, to look at patterns over time. Um, so we do sort of all the layers of of software um, at ASML. So really, what you're interested in, there's there's a place. Um, whether you want to be down at the low level, right? Really getting sensors and actuators to work all the way up to you've got gigs and gigs and gigs of data that don't mean anything to anyone. How do I make sense of it? I'm almost imagining like, okay, there's, there's innovations on the, uh, on the, on the hardware side, on the, almost down to the, like you said, the atomic level, it's chemistry or is this considered uh, chemistry or light? Or uh, I'm trying to figure out like what the right, um, what the right, uh, engineering discipline would be for for the EUV technology, uh, yeah. but you almost have that the, the 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 hardware layer up to the software layer, and then the people thinking about very abstractly computation, yeah. uh, machine yeah. learning data, and then that goes back and feeds into innovation on the bottom layer. So it almost I, I'm picturing yes. like a self <laughs> yeah, a self perpetuating it, machine that the whole world of software and the whole world of engineers are uh, are unwittingly uh, involved in. Some sort yeah, of it, giant, it, it giant cycle like of, that. yeah, so, yeah giant no, cycle of, what do they call it? The, uh, the, the, um, there's a name for it in business, the cycle of, uh, oh shoot, I forgot what it's called. The, uh, I don't know, but in life the, you would call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I like that one. I like that one. All right. Well, I, this has been fascinating. You know, uh, we, we got a lot of great information today and I feel like this is a, a lot of stuff that maybe my listeners haven't been, um, haven't been uh, as exposed to yet, and uh, and I think we'll get a lot of people thinking. So so thanks a lot. Um, are there any last thoughts that you have for our listeners today about our discussion? And where can they go if they want to learn more? I think there's a lot of things that that people might want to learn more on both ASML, uh, you, and the technology that you described. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, for from ASML perspective, you know our website. Uh, everyone's got a website, right? We're no different. ASML.com. Um, uh, is is they they have a lot of information there. 
Um, I would say from a, a, you know, an engineering perspective, uh, you sort of touched on it. You, you talked about chemistry. I mean, we have, there's every type of engineer is required to work uh, to get these things to run. We've got, you know, um, uh, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, software engineers. Those are obviously, we've got mechatronic engineers, um, a large, large number of physicists, uh, chemists, uh, specialists in, in material sciences. Um, uh, it's really, you know, some people have called it sort of science and engineering playground because we, we really, it, it requires almost every discipline. And then, you know, on top of that, um, yeah, it, it, we're a high-tech company, but obviously um, we have all, all different, you know, sectors, you know, from, you know, we have a, we have a very extensive supply chain, you know, tons of, of so customers and vendors and, and so on and so forth. So um, really, there's there's opportunities for almost anyone at ASML. Um, and as for me, I, I'll, I'll share my information with you. And if anyone ever wants to get in touch with me directly, um, you know, I'd be happy to, uh, to to answer any any questions that come in. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to put it all up on the show notes page uh, when this goes out. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. All right. Uh, let me know what you thought about that one. And if any of you in the audience have any thoughts about where we go from here, uh, from this interview, because we usually take what we learned on the local maximum and follow it up with other interviews, other topics uh, next week. I think next week, unless I'm going to slip like a, another solo show in there, uh, but it'll either be next week or the week after, I'm going to talk to the chief data scientist at the New York Times, Chris Wiggins, and historian Matthew Jones about a new book that tracks the history of data science and inference from like, let's say the 19th century to today. And I think you're going to be really surprised about how much you like these guys, even if you also enjoy my occasionally harsh criticisms of the New York Times. Uh, Chris Wiggins, I've interacted with quite a bit in the New York data scene, and he's always a pleasure to talk to and to learn from. So look out for that one. Don't miss that. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and their online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power. Oh,